Warning, binge mode contains adult content. That's right. Not so much in this one. This one's a, a downer, to be honest. But uh, yeah. still, just be warned. And if you're not into adult content, please check out one of the great podcasts from the Ringer Podcast Network. One more warning. Binge mode contains spoilers. If you don't yet know why Creature's holding the pan and asking Harry for just one more for luck. Just tune him up a little bit. Please proceed with extreme caution. And now, binge mode. And one day, a year after he had joined, Master Regulus came down to the kitchen to see Creature. Master Regulus always liked Creature. And Master Regulus said, he said... The old elf rocked faster than ever. He said that the Dark Lord required an elf. Voldemort needed an elf? Harry repeated, looking around at Ron and Hermione, who looked just as puzzled as he did. Oh, yes. Moaned Creature. And Master Regulus had volunteered Creature. It was an honor, said Master Regulus, an honor for him and for Creature, who must be sure to do whatever the Dark Lord ordered him to do, and then to come home. Welcome to Binge Mode Harry Potter. Yes. I'm Mallory Rubin, executive editor of TheRinger.com. What a great website. Glad you're reading, Creature. Yes. That's nice to know. <laughs> Joining me today, now that he's finished bemoaning the quality of the cappuccino Ugh. in the all-night cafe. It's disgusting. <laughs> it's Ringer senior creative and your headmaster, Jason Concepcion. Oh, God, that's revolting. I don't even care if the waitress hears me. Clearly. Just obliviate her. Because it's time for Binge Mode Harry Potter, where we're exploring every facet of the Harry Potter universe. Whether or not you affix everything to your childhood bedroom walls with permanent sticking charms, it's annoying. Please subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, or Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please, rate and review us. Five points and stars for Binge Mode. Also, feel free to follow us on Twitter and Instagram, at binge underscore mode, a.k.a. the underscore, and join our Facebook group, which is just for Binge Mode fans, and which is an excellent place to find new Less tight jeans for Ron. These are my old jeans. <laughs> Please also head to theringer.com slash shop to check out our new binge mode merch. Easy to pack in your small beaded bag. Last time on Binge Mode Harry Potter, we explored how puzzles shape chapters seven and eight of Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows. And on today's episode, we're diving into chapters nine through 11. Mm. Requisite spoiler warning for today's binge as always. While those chapters are today's primary focus, we will be going deep. Deep. On details from all seven books and eight films and the wider Potter oh, canon. That's right. So wide. Taking the entire series into account from the moment we read Lily's letter. So look at the door sign. Check the kitchen nest. Because it's time to hear Creature's Tale. Mal, Dumbledore's still got his invisibility cloak, so no chance of little exertions, but... Plenty of time to offer a brief refresher on what actually happened in Hallow's Chapters 9 through 11 by climbing aboard this scarlet steam engine of plot, the Hogwarts Express. Harry, Hermione, and Ron flee from the wedding as the burrow's protections collapse. And after a skirmish with two Death Eaters in a muggle cafe, they travel to 12 Grimmauld Place. 
Harry explores the Black family home and makes a few key discoveries, most notably the identity of R.A.B., Sirius's brother and dead Death Eater, Regulus Arcturus Black. R.I.P. 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 to R.A.B. Rip Rab. <laughs> the trio learns from Creature about his and Regulus's past adventures with the locket. Then, three days later, after Harry and Lupin have a brutal falling out, Harry learns another disheartening nugget about Dumbledore's past. Creature tracks down the thief Mundungus Fletcher and brings him back to the house. Dung Fletch admits that he stole the <laughs> locket, but reveals that it was confiscated by a ministry witch, Dolores Umbridge, who's about to re-enter our hero's lives. Mal, do you really think you'll get the truth from a malicious old woman like Muriel or from Rita Skeeter? How can you believe them? You knew Isaac! I thought I did. And that gets us to this episode's big idea, so let's dive into the pensive to sift through our thoughts. The defining theme of chapters 9 through 11 of Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows is trust. Chapter 9. A Place to Hide. The fateful words from Kingsley's Patronus initially meet with stunned silence, and then there's a scream as comprehension dawns. People begin disapparating right from the wedding tent. The protective enchantments around the burrow have broken. This place is not safe. Is any? Hermione's first cry is for Ron. Ron, she shouts. Ron, where are you? They need to leave, but only if they're together. And as Harry looks around, he sees Lupin and Tonks raise their wands and shout, Protego. Others shout the spell as well, trying to rebuild the barriers in any way they can, trying to stay alive. Ron, Ron, Hermione called, half sobbing. We've tracked their budding romance since the beginning, the way that they've each slowly realized how they felt about the other, each grasped in the dark for how to turn that unspoken longing into something real and lasting. They're as close as they've ever been to being on the same page, to finding comfort in their feelings and in each other. Mm. And we see here the true terror that grips Hermione as she's faced with losing him. Maybe he's hurt. Maybe she'll have to leave without him. Neither is even conceivable. And Harry grabs Hermione's hand to ensure that they're not separated, and then Ron finds them. And as soon as he grabs Hermione's other arm, she turns on the spot. There's no time to speak, no time to plan, no time, most agonizingly of all, to try to go save other people. They must trust in each other. They must escape. They evaporated to Tottenham Court Road in Muggle London, surrounded by people, sound, and lights. Hermione tells them to walk. The boys are in dress robes, however, far too easy to spot. Ron's lamenting his lack of change of clothes. Harry, the lack of something far more important, his invisibility cloak, the magical object that just last year, Dumbledore told him to keep with him always. Hermione tells him not to worry. She has the cloak. She has the clothes. She has it all. She leads them into a shadowy alleyway, carrying nothing but the small beaded bag she dropped with a surprising thud mm. earlier when Victor the Dictor appeared. <laughs> and from that bag, she pulls what she just promised them and more. We learn that she's used an undetectable extension charm to fill her inconspicuous, easily portable bag with everything they'll need for life on the road. I need one of these, by the way. Yeah, handy. <laughs> Tricky, she says, of the magic. But I think I've done it okay. I think you have. Harry is the chosen one. He boasts uncommon skill of his own and unparalleled courage. But this is one of the many moments when he and we have to pause and marvel about how unfucking believably lucky he is to have made Hermione Granger's acquaintance six years ago. They don't always agree. And that's important, actually. Yes. Hermione pushes Harry more than most. But that served him well, and being able to rely on the brilliance, forethought, and prodigious ability that she boasts 
is a comfort few possess. Plenty falls on Harry, of course, but often he can found on the fact that Hermione will either be right there with him or even ahead of him, mm-hmm. anticipating planning for something no one else can even anticipate. She shakes the bag gently and there's a tumble. Oh, damn, that'll be the books. A mobile library indeed, Ron. (laughs) Harry asks when she did this, and without boasting, she says she's been ready for days, always knowing a quick exit might be possible. I just had a feeling. You're amazing you are, Ron says. Yes. Yes, Ron, she really is. You don't need 12 fail-safe ways to tell you that. (laughs) As Harry puts on his invisibility cloak, the reality of what has transpired finally hits him. In their frantic, shocking escape, there was no time to process any information. And now, with immediate precautions taken, the horrifying truth is penetrating every pore in his body, every synapse of his mind, every corner of his soul. Voldemort has taken over the ministry. The Minister of Magic is dead. The burrow itself has been attacked. And Harry, Ron, and Hermione don't know if any of their friends or family are okay. The others, Harry pants, everyone at the wedding. Hermione, always the voice of reason, says that the Death Eaters— or after Harry. Going back to try to rescue the others would actually put them in harm's way. Ron agrees, and Harry needs to hear this from Ron, because many of the people Harry's referencing are Ron's family members. The attack occurred at Ron's childhood home. Most of the order was there, Ron says. They'll look after everyone. They have to believe in the collective, the other people who are fighting this war by their side. They can't actually do it all on their own. Yeah, Harry says, voicing his agreement. The passage continues. But he thought of Ginny and fear bubbled mm. like acid in his stomach. This is Harry's greatest fear playing out. The prospect of other people hurting for him, maybe even dying for him. Hermione instructs him to keep moving and Ron asks her out of curiosity why she took them to Tottenham Court Road. She says she has no idea. It just popped into her mind from the book. But I'm sure we're safer out in the muggle world. It's not where they'll expect us to be. This plays practically, but there's a real sadness here. They have devolved to the point where Harry, Ron, and Hermione can't even trust being in the wizarding world, the world they are trying to save, and the world they call home. They can't go to the Leaky Cauldron, she says. They can't risk meeting Snape at Grimwald Place for now. She mentions the possibility of her parents' house, a real sign of how desperate they are. Surely that's high on the Death Eaters checklist, which Hermione concedes. As the drunk pub goers pass by, they heckle Hermione and Ron. Harry, unseen under his cloak, Fancy a drink? One shouts, Ditch, 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 come have a pint. Hermione, both to avoid these passersby and to prevent Ron from getting into a scrap, pushes them into a small all-night cafe, grease lining the tables, but mercifully devoid of other patrons. Hermione's back is to the door, and she's anxious. Like Wild Bill Hickok, she knows not to trust what she can't see. Harry's antsy, too. He felt better moving, felt at least like their motion provided some sort of illusion of a goal and security. As Ron floats popping over to Charing Cross Road to check out the Leaky Cauldron for news, Hermione instantly shoots down this impossibly risky idea, and a, quote, prickly silence falls. Shouts to Wild Bill. Love Deadwood. Go watch Deadwood if you haven't. Also, he's a real person, but still, go watch Deadwood. (laughs) Hermione orders two cappuccinos, and Harry, still invisible, won't get to sample this gray swill. (laughs) Sorry, Harry. Right after Hermione orders, quote, a pair of burly workmen entered the cafe and squeezed into the next booth. The presence of others leads Hermione to whisper, and a good thing, too. As we'll learn in a few pages, these are Death Eaters. More in the seven about how they found our friends. She whispers a suggestion to head for the countryside and send word to the Order. She's been practicing Dumbledore's signature talking Patronus and thinks she knows how to work this particular magic. As Ron and Hermione speak, Harry looks over at the workmen and notices that one is, quote, blonde and quite huge. 
And perhaps readers feel a tingle of recognition here. How many times was the wild curse-firing Death Eater in the battle that ended Half-Blood Prince described this way? As Ron and Hermione discuss finding muggle money to pay for their foul coffees, quote, the two workmen made identical movements and Harry mirrored them without conscious thought. All three of them drew their wands. Harry is acting instinctively, trusting the base inclinations that guide him, the spidey sense that tells him when something is amiss. And then Ron literally lunges across the table to shield Hermione with his body and in the process avoids a spell that shatters the tile where his head just was. Harry, invisible and thus at an advantage, shouts, stupefy, take that, signature move heads. (laughs) He knows other spells. Harry's spell knocks out the blonde Death Eater, but the other Death Eater immobilizes Ron with black ropes, at which point the waitress, who probably should have freaked out a couple spells sooner, runs for the door. Most unfortunately for her, she's hit by a stray Harry stunner that misses the act of Death Eater and hits her instead. I don't know why I'm laughing. Very tough stuff for our girl, the waitress. (laughs) It's very tough. And the Death Eater shouts expulso and blows up the table that Harry's hiding behind, slamming Harry into a wall and costing him his wand and the cloak as it starts to slip. But Hermione, clutch as hell, shouts Petrificus Totalis, freezing her foe. Trembling, she casts Defendo to free Ron, but slices his leg open instead. Anyone's hands would be shaking like hers in this moment. They were just attacked by Death Eaters, but more than that, they were just found by Death Eaters, despite not being any place that they should be expected to appear. They move to examine their attackers, and Harry laments not recognizing the blonde Goliath sooner, given his presence the night that Dumbledore died. Ron identifies him as Raoul and the other as Dalahov, whom he recognizes from the old Ministry Wanted posters. More on Dalahov in the seven. Hermione doesn't care who they are, just how they found them. And her panic is unnerving for readers, in part because it's so atypical for Hermione. But that speaks to the horror of what has just unfolded. If they can't understand what's happening, How can they trust themselves to react and plan in kind? But her terror also calms Harry. He tells Hermione to lock the door and Ron to turn out the lights. Ron asks, and this is an amazing moment, Ron asks what they're going to do with the Death Eaters. Kill them? They'd kill us. Get a chill They had a good go just now. It's hard to overstate how unsettling it is to hear Ron ask this question and takes us right back to Harry's argument with Lupin after the Seven Potters battle. It gives us the same sick feeling in our stomachs that we got from Lupin chiding Harry for not aiming to kill or stun, which at that height would have amounted to the same thing. Ron doesn't want this. He whispers the question so quietly that it's clear it's not what he wants. He's afraid to even voice it, asking not because he craves that kind of violence, but because it's hard right now to know what choice to make, to know what's certain. Hermione shudders in response, but Harry authoritatively says no. They need to wipe their memories. Note, however, that his response does not stem purely from the moral implications. It'll throw them off the scent, he says. If we killed them, it'd be obvious we were here. Ron sounds, quote, profoundly relieved by Harry's decision, but again, consider the language. Murder isn't the practical choice. On a certain level, it's how they're rationalizing their choices to themselves, knowing that so many others would stop at nothing to remove their bodies from the board. But on another, it forces us to recall the famous, quote, what is right and what is easy plea that Dumbledore made to the school after Cedric's death. We've never really had to doubt which side Harry will fall on. No matter the choice in question, this moment, as fleeting as it is, is one of the first times we doubt that even for an instant. And it doesn't feel good. No. Neither does watching Hermione cast Obliviate. This one's easier to swallow. And logically, we understand why it's needed. Covering their trail is hugely important, probably even life-sustaining. And what's more, it's not like Hermione, who has never performed a memory charm before, but feels up to trying because she knows the theory, 
is erasing someone's entire life or stealing their achievements like Lockhart. This is targeted magic used in self-defense. But it still feels a little weird, a little off, a little gross to hear Harry shout brilliant after Hermione turns Dollhub into a vacant-eyed mess. Yes. We associate memory charms with people like Lockhart and Barty Crouch and even the ministry officials who cared more about their campsite secrecy than Mr. Roberts' safety. Again, we want our friends to stay alive, and we take solace from seeing them think so rationally. But there's an innocence lost here, too. And when that's gone, it's harder to know what to believe in, and more innocence lost to come. Yes, indeed. They clean up the cafe so that the Death Eaters won't be triggered by waking up in this scene of carnage. And after Ron complains about Hermione packing his old tight jeans, truly an incredible moment from Ron, who is alive and dressed at all because of Hermione. And they discuss how the Death Eaters could have found them. And Hermione floats a truly terrifying possibility. What if Harry still has a trace on him? What if the Death Eaters have found a way to skirt wizarding law and put it on him even though he's 17, now legally a wizarding adult? Quote, Harry felt contaminated, tainted. He voices aloud the concern gnawing at the very essence of his being in this moment. If he can't do magic, and if they can't do it around him without being detected, they can't be together. And what's more, they're doomed. Harry's hopes hinge on trusting in his abilities and the choices that he makes. The idea that he might be deprived of that agency, that he might not be able to make choices at all because he can't do magic, is paralyzing to him. But Hermione quiets him before he proceeds. We're not splitting up, she says. And Ron agrees. They need a place to hide. Without a moment's hesitation, Harry solves it. Grim old place. And Ron and Hermione cannot believe what he's suggesting. The order abandoned Grimald Place as headquarters, after all, specifically because they doubted it was safe. But that's actually an advantage for Harry and co now. No order members being there means no one to endanger, no one to see them, no one to know where they are. No order members means fewer people to potentially compromise the Fidelis charm while they're hiding out. Harry trusts his fellow order members fully, as he showed in the wake of the Seven Potters debacle when he refused to believe that any of their number would betray him. But this, again, is a practical measure. In this one case, their strength in fewer numbers contain the circle of trust, contain the number of potential problems. But what about Snape, they ask? You know, the reason that the order bailed from headquarters in the first place? Well, Harry trusts in the jinxes that Moody put up against Snape. And what's more, as he says, he'd actually love to come face to face with the man he thinks is Dumbledore's killer. <laughs> it's a chilling moment. It and, really is. It's incredible. And again, there's the numbers game. If he does have the trace on him, they'll have to do battle with hosts of Death Eaters wherever they go. But if just Snape comes to 12 Grimwald Place, they'll just be one man. Hermione is not happy about this, but she relents. And unlocking the cafe door, turning on the lights, and lifting the spells they put on Raoul, Dalahov, and the waitress, they turn into the darkness and disapparate. They arrive in the square in front of Grimald Place and run towards number 12, which they can all see. Harry taps the door with his wand and it grants them entrance. The house looks the same as when Harry and Sirius and the rest of the order filled its halls, except for the troll's leg that Tonks used to knock over, which is on its side instead of standing up. Hermione takes this to mean that somebody's been here. And as we'll see next chapter, she's correct. Here, Ron says the order could have knocked over the leg. They stand huddled together in the doormat, afraid to move further, wondering when the defensive jinxes will activate. Finally, Harry puts his faith in the thing he so often does, forward momentum. He takes a step forward and hears Moody's voice whisper, Severus Snape. Harry shouts that they're not Snape and what feels like cold air swoops over them all. 
curling their tongues in their mouths to prohibit speech, then unfurling them again after detecting that they are not, in fact, Snape. As unpleasant as that was, Harry takes another step, buoyed by passing his first test, trusting in Moody's enchantments, knowing the great aura would have enabled order members to pass. A dust-colored figure rises from the carpet, a figure with waist-length hair and beard and empty eye sockets. It's Dumbledore. From the book, horribly familiar, dreadfully altered. Harry shouts, no, it wasn't us, we didn't kill you, and the figure explodes into a cloud of dust. They are all deeply shaken by this corrupted and terrifying version of Dumbledore, clearly intended to frighten and haunt Snape. From the book, had it worked, Harry wondered, or had Snape already blasted the horror figure aside as casually as he had killed the real Dumbledore? Hermione casts Homenum Revelio to check the house for any other human presence, and the spell detects nothing. They're alone. Hermione leads them up to the drawing room on the next level and settles on the sofa, shivering. Ron stealthily checks the windows but says he can't see anyone outside. And as he notes, if Harry still had the trace on him, they'd likely have a tail by now. A small relief here, but one quickly replaced by another huge problem. Harry is crying out in pain, his scar burning as he sees a shadow and feels Voldemort's fury. Ron's asking if Voldemort is at the burrow and then asking again, pressing, pushing for any information, wanting, understandably, to use this portal to gain any clarity he can about his family. And she reminds Harry shrilly that Dumbledore wanted him to close his mind, that Harry needs to still rely on that guidance and work to avoid this vulnerability. Quote, he did not need Hermione to tell him that Voldemort had once used this self-same connection between them to lead him into a trap, nor that it had resulted in Sirius's death. He wished that he had not told them what he had seen and felt. It made Voldemort more threatening, as though he were pressing against the window of the room. It's natural for tensions to be running high in a situation like this, and for every choice to be measured and judged against its potential consequences. But we're starting to see here the tiny fraying fibers that will continue to pull over the course of the ensuing weeks and months as these three friends find themselves alone with nothing but each other and their troubles. As Harry turns his back, Hermione shrieks. The silver form of Arthur's weasel Patronus soars through the window and speaks. Family safe, do not reply. We are being watched. Ron collapses onto the sofa as he whimpers in relief, and we see how his worry was eating away at him, how he stayed with Harry despite his debilitating fear. That's an amazing moment, because you realize like how yes. completely inward he was keeping that, not yes. showing any signs of that, and then all of a sudden it yes. just collapses. It's this unshakable bond that readers can trust in, even in the dark times to come, and Ron and Harry's relationship temporarily fractures. Hermione sits down next to Ron to comfort him. Hermione says, they're all right, they're all right. He laughs as he hugs her. Ron starts to apologize to Harry, but Harry stops him. It's your family, he says. Of course you're worried. I'd feel the same way. I do feel the same way. He hears Hermione say that she doesn't want to be on her own tonight, asking to use the sleeping bags and camp out together in the drawing room, and hears Ron agree. But the pain in his head is mounting, sickeningly, and he can't resist it. Excusing himself to the bathroom, he bolts the door as the pain overcomes him. And from the book, he felt the rage that did not belong to him possess his soul. Key phrasing here. Another Horcrux clue. He sees Voldemort ordering Draco to torture Roll and threatening to feed the Death Eater to Nagini. You called me back for this to tell me that Harry Potter has escaped again. Harry wakes on the floor. From the book, Malfoy's gaunt, petrified face seemed branded on the inside of his eyes. Harry felt sickened by what he had seen, by the use to which Draco was now being put by Voldemort. Remember at the end of Prince, how Harry begins to feel 
from the book, the tiniest drop of pity mingled with dislike for Draco. How he notes that Draco's voice was full of fear atop the tower and that his wand had dropped at the crucial moment. Harry so often held Dumbledore's penchant for trust and forgiveness against the headmaster, but Harry's own capacity for empathy and newfound understanding is at the core of his character, something that sets him apart from Voldemort and makes him worthy of our love and admiration. We'll see it in full with Snape at book's end, and we start to see it here with Draco. But Harry keeps to himself what he's seen, accepting Hermione's proffered toothbrush with formed calmness in his voice. Man. Yeah. This book is good. Chapter 10, Creature's Tale. This is an all-time chapter from the first word to the last. Harry wakes before dawn, pale blue light filtering in from outside, the gentle sound of Hermione and Ron sleeping, the only disruption to the quiet in the room. He looks over at where their shapes are huddled close together. Hermione elevated slightly above Ron after he insisted that she sleep on top of the couch cushions. Quote, Her arm curved to the floor, her fingers inches from Ron's. Harry wondered whether they had fallen asleep holding hands. The idea made him feel strangely lonely. It's one of my all-time favorite lines. And it is quietly one of the saddest moments in the entire series. Because Harry is with the people he trusts most in the world. Mm -hmm. The trio are family now. They've chosen each other over everyone and everything. They're together in a way that transcends physical proximity. They have sworn themselves to each other, to their common cause. And each of them brings something vital to both the relationship and the mission to discover and destroy the Horcruxes, to defeat Voldemort. Harry is no stranger to feeling isolated and alone. His childhood with the Dursleys was full of misery and neglect. He entered the wizarding world to find himself famous for something that he couldn't remember and didn't control. Ever since, he's been burdened by expectations from others, from Dumbledore, from the prophecy, from himself. But through it all, he's had Ron and Hermione. He mm-hmm. can count on them. And make no mistake, he can count on them still. He can trust in them still. As they showed him at the borough, they've placed their commitment to him above everything in their lives, including their other loved ones. But there's a ripple in the air now, a small recalibration in how the three of them relate to each other. Harry has known for some time that things were changing, blossoming between Ron and Hermione. In Half-Blood Prince, he reflected on his complicated feelings about the prospect of their union. But there, just a year ago, he harped over how awkward things would be if they got together and then split up, as he and Cho had. Or if they were so smitten with each other that they made everyone else around them feel embarrassed all the time, as Bill and Floor do. This is different. What he's feeling here speaks not to those natural but ultimately childish concerns from a year ago, but to a deep-seated sense of separation. His best friends are falling in love with each other, Mm -hmm. and he is not a part of that. Can't be. No matter how strong their bond is in every other respect, what Ron and Hermione are building is another thing, a special, separate private thing. And the stab of loneliness that Harry feels when he looks at them in the pre-dawn dimness is especially sharp for that very reason. As Ron and Hermione grow closer and forge their own path together as a couple, they necessarily leave Harry behind in some way, underlining that even the bond he believes in and cares for most in the world can't make room for him in every respect, nor can it give him everything he seeks. Hermione and Ron haven't gotten married yet. They haven't even kissed yet. Yeah, But as he contemplates the idea of them holding hands, just holding hands, that small gesture speaks to an intimacy, a closeness that Harry does not have. 
that he has cut out of his life because he thinks himself unworthy of that kind of love and a danger to the person with whom he'd share it. Harry's thoughts shift back to Bill and Fleur's wedding before Auntie Muriel's world-shaking reveals and the fall of the ministry and the desperate escape from the borough and the battle in the cafe just a day ago from the book. It seemed a lifetime away. What was going to happen now? He sits thinking about horcruxes and the tasks that Dumbledore set him. From the book, the grief that had possessed him since Dumbledore's death felt different now. The accusations he had heard from Muriel at the wedding seemed to have nested in his brain like diseased things, infecting his memories of the wizard he had idolized. Harry trusted Dumbledore, trusts him still, despite it all. Though, what choice does he really have at this point, other than to believe in that trust? And Dumbledore did not always return Harry's trust. Even as, toward the end of his life, he became more open with Harry, he still withheld. And as Harry sits here now, wondering if anything Muriel said could possibly be true, he laments not only the prospect that his trust could have been misplaced, but why Dumbledore didn't put more trust in him. Why, if it's true, he never told him about Godric's Hollow and their loved ones laying beside each other in their tombs. Why he hadn't told Harry more about how to use the gifts he had left them. Passage continues, resentment swelled in the darkness. Why hadn't Dumbledore told him? Why hadn't he explained? Had Dumbledore actually cared about Harry at all? And this is like, brutal line or had Harry been nothing more than a tool to be polished and honed but not trusted never confided in it's a tragic moment a tragic thought a fracturing of a sacred bond doubt creeping in through the cracks and infecting one of the foundations on which this story and Harry's life has built Dumbledore had been true north for Harry and readers a guiding light in the increasingly absolute darkness but what happens when that light starts to dim and go out hounded by these doubts Harry can't sit still So he decides to explore at last his house, the house that Sirius left him, the house that Sirius hated. He wanders up the stairs and gazes into the bedroom where he and Ron stayed in Order of the Phoenix. The wardrobe is open, the bedding disturbed. It's clear that someone has searched the house since the order vacated. Harry wonders if it could be Snape, correct, more on this in the seven, or Mundungus, whom Harry had previously caught red-handed with items lifted from his home. Phineas Nigelus isn't in his portrait, Harry notices. And then he continues on to the top floor, where he finds Sirius's bedroom, which he's never entered before. The Blacks, as Walburga's portrait will tell anyone who offends it, were proud purebloods, and they were traditionally sorted into Slytherin. Sirius was the Black's black sheep, and his old bedroom reflects his streak of teenage rebellion. Quote, Sirius seemed to have gone out of his way to annoy his parents. There were several large Gryffindor banners, faded scarlet and gold, just to underline his difference from all the rest of the Slytherin family. (laughs) This next line's incredible. There were many pictures of muggle motorcycles, and also, Harry had to admire Sirius's nerve, several posters of bikini-clad muggle girls. (laughs) Shouts to Sirius now and always. We know how Sirius resented his family, how much trust he put in himself to break free of them and become his own person. I hated the whole lot of them, Sirius told Harry in Order of the Phoenix. My parents, with their pureblood mania, convinced that to be a black made you practically royal. My idiot brother, soft enough to believe them. There's dust on the surfaces of Sirius's room. This permanent sticking charm forged mausoleum to Sirius's conviction, betraying how much time has passed. 
But there's also, quote, solid wax hanging in frost-like drops from the chandelier, creating the sensation of a moment frozen in time, a moment that could have been paused, interrupted mere seconds ago. There's only one wizarding photograph in the room. This kills me. Quote, a picture of four Hogwarts students standing arm in arm laughing at the camera. It's the Marauders. And Harry feels a surge of happiness as he gazes upon his father, James. Quote, his untidy black hair stuck up at the back like Harry's, and he too wore glasses. He looks at Sirius, quote, carelessly handsome, his slightly arrogant face so much younger and happier than Harry had ever seen it alive. Next to Sirius is the traitor, Peter Pettigrew, quote, more than a head shorter, plump and watery-eyed, flushed with pleasure at his inclusion in this coolest of gangs. And finally, Lupin, quote, even then a little shabby looking, but he had the same air of delighted surprise at finding himself liked and included. We have noted how introspective, self-aware, and observant Harry has become, a product of his hard-won maturity and burgeoning wisdom. He reflects on his impressions of these four young men. Quote, was it simply because Harry knew how it had been that he saw these things in the picture? I love that moment. It's incredible. Part of the reason that what he's recently heard about Dumbledore has shaken him so is because it's caused Harry on some existential level to question the relationship between truth and experience. Is a person who you know them to be or what others say they are? No portrait could raise these questions more keenly than one of the marauders who stood here arm in arm with a man who would betray them. This photograph is proof of life for James and for a version of Sirius that Harry never got to know, but it's also a reminder affixed forever to Sirius's wall of what blind faith can sometimes cost. Harry, unable to remove the photo from the wall, looks down at the cluttered floor and begins to sift through the detritus of Sirius's past. His eyes fall on a pile of papers in a shaft of light cast by the morning sun. He finds pages from a copy of Bathilda Bagshot's A History of Magic, a maintenance manual for a motorcycle, and a letter from his mother, Lily, to Sirius. The letter will naturally dominate Harry's attention, but it's worth taking a moment to note how consequential all of these items are, each laden with significance for Harry's past and future. Bathilda, Harry will soon learn, was Rita Skeeter's source, a close associate of Dumbledore's and a family member of Grindelwald's. Here... He learns that she was close to Lily Potter and that she was the only person, besides Harry's parents, present at Harry's first birthday party, his birthday tea. Later in this book, Harry will have a nightmarish run-in with her reanimated corpse in Godric's Hollow. The motorcycle manual, meanwhile, can only be for Sirius's flying motorcycle, which Sirius flew to Godric's Hollow on the night of Lily and James's murder and there left in Hagrid's care, and which the gameskeeper used to spirit Harry away from the wreckage after Voldemort murdered Harry's parents. Harry never got to know Lillian James. He didn't get nearly enough time with Sirius. Scenes like this allow him to stitch together his understanding of who they were, to put trust in how what he finds reinforces or expands what he knows in his heart to be true. When he first gazed upon the mess on the floor, he thought that, quote, its contents seemed to have been judged mostly, if not entirely worthless. But as we'll later see, that wasn't true for Snape when he found Lily's letter and photo. And it's not true for Harry here. He picks up the crumpled handwritten letter and smooths it flat to read. From the first line, we realize that it's Lily. Dear Padfoot. This kills me. Thank you, thank you for Harry's birthday present. It was his favorite by far. One year old and already zooming along on a toy broomstick. He looks so pleased with himself. I'm enclosing a picture so you can see. For the first time, Harry is gazing down at his mother's handwriting. 
This letter was penned shortly before Lily's murder at the height of Voldemort's first reign of terror, and the Potters were in hiding, putting their faith in Dumbledore and the Order and their own secret keeper. James, Lily writes, is sure that Harry will be a great Quidditch player. She writes about Harry's birthday tea, lamenting that Sirius could not be there, while assuring him that, quote, the Order's got to come first, and Harry's not old enough to know it's his first birthday anyway. She notes that James would love a visit, though. He's, quote, getting a bit frustrated shut up here. He tries not to show it, but I can tell. Also, Dumbledore still got his invisibility cloak, so no chance of little excursions. The letter also continues with a mention of Pettigrew, the man who ultimately betrayed Lily and James's trust by giving their location to Voldemort. Wormy was here last weekend. I thought he seemed down, but that was probably the news about the McKinnons. I cried all evening when I heard. He seemed down. Finally, the letter again mentions Bathilda Bagshot, saying... She, quote, drops in most days. She's a fascinating old thing with the most amazing stories about Dumbledore. I'm not sure he'd be pleased if he knew. I don't know how much to believe, actually, because it seems incredible that Dumbledore, and there the letter stops. Harry is numb after he reads, quote, the miraculous paper through. Quote, a kind of quiet eruption of joy and grief thundering in equal measure through his veins. Recall how Harry felt back in Sorcerer's Stone as he gazed hungrily upon his family in the mirror, Vera said. Quote, he had a powerful kind of ache inside him. Half joy, half terrible sadness. He was 11 then. He's 17 now, a man. But he feels the same bitter sorrow and transformative bliss as he gains access to a sliver of his parents' past. It's a gift, something he didn't have before, but also a reminder of how much more he never got. He sits and reads the letter again, then looks at the writing itself, studying it, soaking up anything it has to offer him. Quote, she had made her G's the same way he did. This is just fucking devastating. He searched through the letter for every one of them, and each felt like a friendly little wave glimpse from behind a veil. The veil, the rippling barrier mm-hmm. between life and death that took Sirius, the calls to Harry, William Penn's crossing of the world and the seas. Quote, the letter was an incredible treasure, proof that Lily Potter had lived, really lived, that her warm hand had once moved across this parchment, tracing ink into these letters, these words, words about him, Harry, her son. Oh, man. So many people have told Harry so many things about Lily, about her potions acumen, about her kind heart, about her bright green eyes, his eyes. He's seen her in photos and the mirror. And memories. Heard her echo speak when it emerged from Voldemort's wand. This feels so special, so sacred, in part because it isn't aided by magic. It's just Lily. Just her words, pure and unadulterated. Talking about the kinds of things that mother and son would have discussed in everyday life. It's an anchor in a stormy sea, as real as her touch or her whispered words of comfort would have been. And Harry wipes the tears from his eyes as he reads the letter again, looking for more meaning. Quote, they had had a cat. Every sentence, every clause, every word, every detail of Lily's letter tells him something real, gives him something to hold on to and trust in. He thinks about Sirius buying him his first broomstick. What beautiful symmetry. Sirius, of course, having bought him his firebolt as well. Harry has so often found peace and belonging in the air. Here, for the first time, he realizes how deep the roots go. He moves on to the line about Dumbledore having James's invisibility cloak. And this, 
for the first time, brings him up short, as so many things about Dumbledore have lately. Yes. From the book, there was something funny there. Harry recalls Dumbledore telling him years ago, I don't need a cloak to become invisible. In King's Cross at book's end, Dumbledore will confess to Harry that after James showed him the cloak, he asked to examine it, wanting to determine whether it was the cloak of Hallow's lore. And then your father died, he'll tell Harry then. And I had two Hallows at last, all to myself. His tone was unbearably bitter. It will be a long time before Harry learns of the Hallows and longer time still before he hears this confession from Dumbledore. But this line in Lily's letter is one more seed of doubt that will eat in him, flowering into mistrust. He moves on next to the line about Wormy, who seemed, quote, down because he had betrayed his friends, because he might have known in that moment that he was seeing them for the last time. And then he returns to the end about Bathilda and her stories about Dumbledore. What seemed incredible? We'll learn later that the next line on the second page that Snape took because it bore Lily's signature and her expression of love mentioned Dumbledore's friendship with Grindelwald, which Bethilda was apparently discussing freely long before Rita wormed the information out of her from the book. There were any number of things that would seem incredible about Dumbledore, Harry thinks here, not least of which is how little Harry seems to have known about him. Harry looks everywhere for the second page and fails to find it, but in his search, discovers a torn photo, the photo Lily mentioned in her letter, and he sees himself one-year-old, zooming on his broomstick with James's legs in the distance. The missing half, we'll learn, went with Snape. Wondering who took the second sheet and what on it could have been of value and whether that something was the missing half sentence about Dumbledore, Harry hears Hermione scream his name. They woke, and not seeing him, they panicked. This is a very sweet moment, actually, made sweeter still by Harry instantly handing over the letter to Hermione. Look what I've just found. He could have kept this treasure private, but he wants to share it with his friends because they are his family too. And Hermione remarks that all the other rooms in the house have also been disturbed and asks what someone could have been searching for, dismissing Harry's first theory of Snape looking for information on the order by noting fairly that Snape would have had that already. Quote, well then, what about information on Dumbledore? He mentions Bathilda and what Muriel told him about her living in Godric's Hollow and knowing the Dumbledores. Be pretty interesting to talk to, wouldn't she, he says. The passage continues. There was a little too much understanding in the smile Hermione gave him for Harry's liking. He puts the photo in the letter in his mokeskin pouch and tells Hermione what Muriel told him at the wedding. By the way, where is Ron? Is he taking a shit this whole time? Like, what is he doing? Do you know how long it would take Harry to tell Hermione what Muriel told him? I know. Good God, Ron. Hermione's reply to Harry's story is one forged in the fire of trust, one born from the belief that the people you know are who you think they are. How can you believe them? She asks him. You knew Dumbledore. But Harry's trust is shattered. Yes. I thought I did, he says. <sighs> Man. But Hermione won't relent, asking how he can let people like Rita, a known liar, and Jason's favorite journalist, and Muriel, Clearly, she's, she's right about a lot of stuff. <laughs> she's right about a lot of things. She's not wrong. <laughs> Clearly unkind, tarnished his memory of someone that he loved. Quote, there it was again, he thinks. Choose what to believe. He wanted the truth. Why was everybody so determined that he should not get it? She suggests that they head down to the kitchen for breakfast and he passes a Quote, pompous, Percy-esque sign that reads, Do not enter without the express permission of Regulus Arcturus Black. Remember the chill you got in this moment? I was like, oh! <laughs> he feels his excitement before he realizes why, and he calls Hermione back up the stairs. R.I.B., he says. I think I found him. Now, very quick aside here. Yeah. 
most readers had figured this out. Yes. There were enough clues, enough Easter eggs, but the true sign of a master storyteller, it did not in any way diminish from the proof. She squeezes Harry's arm so tight that it hurts. Sirius's brother, he says, as she looks at the sign, was a Death Eater, a Death Eater who got cold feet and was murdered. Hermione summons Ron, and together they enter Regulus's room. Slytherin colors abound, and the walls are papered with news clippings about Voldemort. Harry spots a photo of the Slytherin Quidditch team and spots Regulus at once. He played Seeker, Harry says. It's a small connection, a small humanizing moment. Death Eaters play Quidditch, too. After an hour of searching, they have to concede that the locket is in the room, but Hermione is not discouraged. It could still be in the house, she says, reminding them all of the foul possessions they sifted through two years ago. And as she's recounting this, she trails off, stunned into silence by her revelation. Something wrong? Ron asks. There was a locket, she says. In the drawing room cabinet, they emptied. No one could open it. And we, we, they threw it away. Harry feels ill, as he remembers from the book. He had even handled the thing as they passed it around, each trying in turn to pry it open. It had been tossed into a sack of rubbish. A shard of Voldemort's soul discarded unknowingly as trash. Where it belongs, honestly. (laughs) (laughs) Harry has one last hope. Creature, he recalls, kept nicking the items that they were trashing, trying to keep as many of the family's treasures as possible. They run to the kitchen and open Creature's cupboard, searching his nest. But no trinkets wait in the filthy folds, only a dead mouse. (laughs) Ron and Hermione are dismayed. But Harry, always believing there's a way forward, remains staunch. It's not over yet, he shouts. Creature! And now a brief break for a word from our sponsor. Today's binge mode is brought to you by Dell. The Dell XPS 13 with an Intel Core i7 processor is the laptop for people who never say no to one more episode. With lifelike color, brilliant sound clarity, and smooth streaming. Yes. Dell Cinema Technology makes the XPS 13 the perfect Ah. laptop for people who watch things on their laptop. Call 800 by dell to learn more or visit dell.com slash dell cinema. And now, back to binge mode. Harry has summoned the elf from Hogwarts, and Creature appears with the signature crack. He's as unhappy to see Harry as Harry, who still loathes Creature for betraying Sirius and for using language like mudblood, which Harry forbids him from saying here, is to see him. But Harry wastes no time, spares no pleasantries. He tells Creature he has a question for him and orders him to answer it truthfully. Two years ago, said Harry, his heart now hammering against his ribs. There was a big gold locket in the drawing room upstairs. We threw it out. Did you steal it back? (laughs) Creature's silent for a moment before answering, as his enslavement requires him to. Yes. The trio is gleeful as Harry asks where it is. Creature closes his eyes in misery as he says, gone. He croaks out the details. Dung Fletch, fucking Dung Fletch, stole it, stole all of it. And he lists the treasures that Mundungus took until finally in a blood-curdling scream, he shrieks. And the locket, Master Regulus's locket, Creature did wrong. Creature failed in his orders. Creature saw Dung stealing the objects, tried to stop him, but failed. Harry demands once more, asking why Creature called the locket Regulus's and where it came from. Tell me everything you know about the locket, he says, and everything Regulus had to do with it. Creature obliges, and really, he has no choice. He says that Regulus, unlike Sirius, was a good boy with 
proper pride, who wanted to bring wizards out of hiding and who joined the Death Eaters at 16. So proud, so proud, so happy to serve. One day, Creature continues. Regulus came down to the kitchen to chat with Creature, whom he'd always liked. Creature sitting in a ball, rocking back and forth with force, as he recalls this, clearly visibly distressed and increasingly so. He said the Dark Lord required an elf. Harry, Ron, and Hermione are confounded. Why would Voldemort need a house elf? Regulus, we learned, volunteered creature. It was an honor, said Master Regulus, an honor for him and for creature who must be sure to do whatever the Dark Lord ordered him to do and then to come home. Creature is sobbing now, pulling breath between whales. Creature says that Voldemort did not tell him what they were doing, but, quote, took Creature with him to a cave beside the sea, and beyond the cave there was a cavern, and in the cavern was a great black lake. The hairs on the back of Harry's neck stood up. Creature's croaking voice seemed to come to him from across the dark water. Harry can visualize what transpired as clearly as he can remember his own horrifying descent into the cave, into that hell. There was a boat, Creature continues, and Harry thinks, of course there had been a boat. Harry knew the boat. He's replaying a film in his mind, watching Creature travel each stroke, each step, just as Harry did. Harry's own experience allows him to solve the puzzle in real time. As Creature is explaining, not needing to process, not needing to debrief with Hermione later. He knows. He's sure. He's trusting in his own miserable history and his knowledge of Voldemort's foul soul, too. The boat only holds one wizard's magic, Harry calls. And so this is how Voldemort tested his defenses from the book. By borrowing a disposable creature, a house elf, a victim for testing the potion. Creature describes that potion, that poison now. The Dark Lord made Creature drink it. He's shaking uncontrollably, as he tells him. Not because he trusts them, not because he wants to share, but because the bindings of his kind mean that he has to recount this horror, the greatest of his life. That he drank and drank, that he saw awful things, and that his insides burned. That Voldemort laughed as Creature cried out for his master and his mistress. Voldemort dropped the locket into the basin after Creature finished, then filled it with more potion and sailed away, leaving Creature to die. <sighs> Harry watches the scene in his mind's eye, seeing Voldemort's pitiless stare, knowing the creature would perish when he succumbed to his thirst and drew forth the Inferi waiting in the depths below. The way that she weaves in and out of creature's information, creature's quotes, and Harry's internal monologue here is just incredible. But Harry cannot see how creature survived. Creature confirms that he drank and the dead hands gripped him and that they pulled him down to their watery purgatory. How did you get away? Harry asks. And he was not surprised to hear himself whispering. Creature looks at Harry and says, simply, Master Regulus told Creature to come back. But how? Harry repeats. Quote, Creature did not seem to understand. Hmm. Ron solves it. He disapparated. He used the magic of his kind to do what a wizard in that same cave, what Harry and Dumbledore could not. Just like the house elves can operate in and out of Hogwarts, just like Dobby will be able to penetrate the cell at Malfoy Manor. Quote, there was a silence as Harry digested this. How could Voldemort have made such a mistake? This is a massive moment, a key installment in the ever-expanding library of Voldemort's crippling hubris. He never took Harry seriously enough, dismissing him as a boy who got by on luck. Soon, We'll learn that he believed as he stored Ravenclaw's lost diadem and the shard of his soul contained therein in the Room of Requirement that he had discovered what others had and could not. We'll learn that he never realized 
Regulus had stolen his actual locket, nor that Dumbledore and Harry discovered the scope of his secret and began working to bring him down, horcrux by horcrux, bit of soul by bit of soul. He never realized either, as he chased after the Elder Wand, that this was one of three, nor that he already had another. Later, Harry will think, didn't the simple fact that he had taken a hallow and turned it into a horcrux demonstrate that he did not know this last great wizarding secret? Voldemort thinks he's all-knowing thinks he's superior not only to all other beings, but to the very inevitable creep of mortality that claims us all. Yet he'll fail to realize who really won the Elder Wand's allegiance, fail to realize how wand lore really works, what the wand chooses the wizard really means, and why it really matters. And he never gave elf magic a passing thought, never considered the creature would be capable of doing something that Voldemort, brilliant mind, master plotter, had not foreseen. Remember, Harry doesn't count in the boat because he's a child. Mm -hmm. Same thing for an elf. Voldemort proved himself susceptible, just as he did in the graveyard that night in Goblet of Fire, just as he will time and again over the course of this book. Not to brute strength or brain power or skill, but to that which he dismisses as unworthy of his respect and consideration. Quote, it would never have occurred to him that they might have magic that he didn't, Hermione says, as Creature explains, that he did what he had been bid, what the highest law of his kind required him to honor. Quote, Creature was told to come home, so Creature came home. Creature says that Regulus was, quote, very worried, ordering him to stay hidden, then coming to him one night. Strange, not as he usually was, disturbed in his mind, Creature says. He told Creature to take him to the cave. He made you drink the potion, Harry asks, in disgust, but no. Creature sobs as he recalls when unfolded. Regulus took from his pocket a fake locket, the locket that Harry and Dumbledore found, and told Creature to switch lockets after the basin was empty. And he ordered Creature to leave without him. He told Creature to go home and never to tell his mistress what happened and to work to destroy the locket. And then Regulus drank the potion from the book. And Creature swapped the lockets and watched as Master Regulus was dragged beneath the water. And at last we understand this is what R.I.B. Regulus wrote of in his note in the locket. This is the sacrifice that he made. It said, I want you to know that it was I who discovered your secret. Once Creature told him what transpired, once he realized what Voldemort was doing, not only to the elf he loved, but to his own soul, to other people, to the very laws of nature, his trust with Voldemort broke and his illusion too. He acted. I have stolen the real Horcrux and intend to destroy it as soon as I can, he wrote. I face death in the hope that when you meet your match, you will be mortal once more. He signed it, wanting Voldemort to know it was him. Wanting Voldemort to understand that he'd been bested by a boy in a house elf. Wanting this to be his real legacy after he fell beneath the lake, becoming, we must imagine, one of the army of the dead. But Voldemort never checked. He never wondered. And Creature, poor Creature, believes that he disobeyed because he could not destroy the locket, could not complete the task that Regulus had set him. Creature was tortured by Voldemort and then by his own regret, which gnawed away at him over the years as he sat alone, bemoaning what he perceived as his failure. When Hermione tries to comfort Creature, he calls her mudblood and Harry chides him as he punishes himself. But Hermione defends him. Don't you see now how sick it is, she says, the way they've got to obey. And Harry looks down at Creature, covered in tears and mucus, shivering and bloodshot and bruised. Quote, Harry had never seen anything so pitiful. But he needs more information. And so he asks what happened when Creature brought the locket home. Nothing Creature did, he says, to try to destroy it worked. He knew that he needed to get inside. 
that that was the key, but he could not open it. Quote, so many powerful spells upon the casing, as we will see. And he couldn't even tell the family what really happened to their son. Harry asks how Creature could betray Sirius to Voldemort after what Voldemort did to him. But Hermione says the Creature doesn't think like that. He's loyal to people who are kind to him. Quote, I've said all along that wizards would pay for how they treat house elves, she said. Well, Voldemort did, and so did Sirius. This recalls Dumbledore's words to Harry after Sirius's death. Creature, Dumbledore said at the time, is what he has been made by wizards, Harry. Hmm. Regulus never explained that he had turned against Voldemort, wanting to protect Creature and his family, wanting to keep them safe. And Sirius was never kind to Creature. Never, as Dumbledore told Harry, saw Creature as a being with feelings as acute as a human's. Harry tries to speak with tenderness now, tries to learn from those mistakes, as he asks Creature to, quote, when you feel up to it, air, please sit up. He needs to give an order now, but he wants to do so kindly, with respect, with an avenue for Creature to assume some agency. I am going to ask you something, Harry says, and then he does. Please go find Mundungus so that they can find out where Master Regulus's locket is. Quote, we want to finish the work Master Regulus started. We want to er, ensure that he didn't die in vain. And as Creature nods and stands, Harry is struck suddenly, and he pulls out the fake locket, tells Creature he'd like him to have it. <laughs> this object of Regulus is this totem of their sacrifice. Creature howls in shock as he receives it. He, quote, was so overcome to be presented with a Black family heirloom for his very own that he was too weak at the knees to stand properly. And here, with just this modicum of kindness and respect, the beginnings of faith bloom. Creature bows to Harry and Ron and even twitches in Hermione's direction. <laughs> Something fundamental has changed between them. Something that will lead in the very next chapter to Creature changing his disposition entirely. Something that will lead to him charging at the head of a house elf army against Voldemort's forces in the Battle of Hogwarts. It's not true, pure affection, mm -hmm. but it's the beginning of loyalty. It's the beginning of trust. It's the beginning of something beautiful, and it's a start. Chapter 11, The Bribe. Creature's tale leaves a deep impression on Harry, who figures that, you know what? Compared to surviving the cave twice after being left for dead by Voldemort, Finding dumb Fletch will be a snap. Unfortunately, no. <laughs> Hours stretch into days, and there's no sign of the elf. The signs Harry, Ron, and Hermione do see, meanwhile, are terrifying. Peering out the window, they can see two cloaked men lingering in the square, watching the space where the invisible house must be. Death Eaters for sure, says Ron. Do they know our trio is in there? I don't think so, Hermione says. Or they'd have sent Snape in after us, wouldn't they? Our friends trusting each other is rock solid, unshakable. The phrase will appear over the course of this book. Our trio recognizes implicitly how precious their relationship is, and they will protect it and each other ferociously. Unfortunately, they have no idea and thus cannot take comfort in the fact that they can trust Snape, too. Whether or not the Death Eaters know that our heroes are within the hidden house at 12 Grimald, they know for certain that Harry owns it. Harry asks how. Phyllis in Hermione. She says, wizarding wills are examined by the ministry, remember? They'll know Sirius left you the place. With the ministry toppled and the order under scrutiny and information about their lives available in a way they can't control, Harry, Ron, and Hermione are betting their survival on their reliance on and belief in one another. Just like us, guys. As the days stretch on, with our friends under siege from the Death Eaters and the ministry, now 
in essence, one and the same, and stuck in place until Creature returns with dung and actionable information about the locket, the refuge of Grimald Place begins to feel like a gilded cage. The stress of isolation, of not knowing how their dearest friends and family are faring outside, and of course, of not being able to do anything, frays their nerves. Ron, for one, is using the Deluminator as a toy. A homie needs a fidget spinner. It's unbelievable. (laughs) (laughs) This would get extremely annoying very quickly. It's like a pen clicking, (laughs) but like... But all the lights going out. So the total darkness. (laughs) (laughs) Making whatever space he happens to be in strobe from darkness to light like a nightclub, but with none of the booze or dancing. Nothing. Damn it. This annoys Hermione, who's trying to use the time to study the copy of Beetle that Dumbledore left her. Will you stop it? She cried on the third <laughs> evening of Creature's absence as all light was sucked from the drawing room yet again. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> I don't know I'm doing it. Well, can you find something useful to occupy yourself? What? Like reading kids' how stories? How dare you, Ron? Honestly, how dare you? Incredibly tough look for our Why guy. Why don't you just walk around in dress robes all the time then? <laughs> Dumbledore (laughs) left me this book, Ron. And he left me the Deluminator. Maybe I'm supposed to use it. Now, Harry, Ron, and Hermione did not know that they would need to embark on their journey in an instant, fleeing from danger. But they knew they'd be setting out soon. And when they started to discuss and prepare in the limited hours that they were able to steal at the borough, they were daunted by, if anything, the sheer volume of choices that awaited them, the magnitude of what they needed to figure out. It seemed surely like they'd be choosing from any number of options, myriad possible paths. They never anticipated feeling shut in so quickly, feeling trapped and unsure, already beholden to someone other than one of the core three. But this is the other side of the total dependence on each other that we've highlighted already. They must form new alliances when and where appropriate, look to put faith and hope in others, like they're doing here with Creature, who has something they need. What's more... There's some nice meta-commentary at play here from J.K. and that line above from Ron. What, like reading kids' stories? Well, yeah, yes. The copy of Beetle contains the clue that will unlock so much, the sign of the Deathly Hallows. Just like reading Harry Potter, which many would narrow-mindedly dismiss as kids' stories, unlocks so much for so many of us. Ah, but what does finding clues in Beetle necessarily mean? It means continuing to put stock in Dumbledore, in his vision, in his plan. It means continuing to believe fully in the man that Harry is no longer sure deserves it. Harry, driven downstairs by Ron and Hermione's arguing, hears a tap on the front door and the trademark grinding of chains. Every fiber of his being on full alert, Harry pulls out his wand and creeps toward the door. It opens, and a figure framed by the light from the square outside steals in. Mad-Eye security measures activate. It was not I who killed you, Albus, said a quiet voice, and the jinx breaks, and Harry shouts, show yourself, ready for a fight. Spoiling, for one, in fact, as we'll see in the agonizing scene which follows. Lupin announces himself, and Hermione and Ron both relent, but Harry stays firm, demanding proof. A lesson Lupin taught him after the Seven Potters fiasco. I am Remus John Lupin, werewolf, sometimes known as Mooney, one of the four creators of the Marauder's Map, married to Nymphadora, usually known as Tonks, and I taught you how to produce a Patronus, Harry, which takes the form of a stag. Lupin quite approves of Harry's caution and lightly chides Ron and Hermione for lowering their defenses. In effect, for being in their joy and gratitude for seeing a friendly face and hearing a friendly voice at last, too quick to trust. Mm -hmm. And tipping his hand here, he invokes his standing as your ex-defense against the dark arts teacher. Harry can't help but notice how exhausted Lupin looks. 
but also how pleased he is to see them. Lupin asks if there's been any sign of Snape at the former headquarters, and Harry, in turn, asks for news. Is everyone okay? Yes, said Lupin, but we're all being watched. He notes the Death Eaters in the square outside and says that he had to apparate precisely onto the top step of the house within the effect of the Fidelius charm to avoid being seen, a technique our trio will begin using in short order. Lupin, again, teaching them something. Always. He observes that if the Death Eaters knew Harry was within, there would be more than just two of them lingering there. But it's not all good news. The ministry, he tells them, is dutifully surveilling anyone in any place with a connection to Harry. Let's go downstairs, he says. There's a lot to tell you, and I want to know what happened after you left the borough. Lupin pulls butterbeers from his traveling cloak, which is just an iconic twist on the survival kit. Before he fills them in, Harry explains how they got to Grimmauld Place after the wedding, the excursion to Tottenham Court Road, and the battle with the Death Eaters in the cafe. And Lupin is aghast. He notes that it's impossible to track anyone who operates without being in physical contact with the traveler. How, then, did the Death Eaters follow them? And Hermione again raises the possibility that Harry's underage magic trace might still be active, but Lupin shuts this down, noting that if this were the case, the square outside would be swarming with foes. But eliminating that option doesn't give them any clarity. That's worrying, Lupin says, really worrying. As is hearing this from Lupin, so often a source of reassurance and positivity. They ask him what happened after the wedding, and he says that thanks to Kingsley's warning, most of the guests managed to disapparate before a combined force of ministry employees and Death Eaters, which he describes as, to all intents and purposes, they're the same thing now, arrived. They didn't realize Harry was in attendance, he says, in part because the Minister of Magic's final act was to deprive them of that information. Quote, Arthur heard a rumor that they tried to torture your whereabouts out of Scrimgeour before they killed him. If it's true, he didn't give you away. Shouts! To Rufus Scrimgeour. Let's give him one more squawk of Phoenix Song. His last words to Harry were an entreaty for their two sides to work together to put shattered trust aside and fight toward their common goal, beating Voldemort. Scrimgeour made a lot of mistakes, but his final moments were undeniably heroic, not undoing his missteps, but proving himself worthy of more faith than our heroes were able to grant him in life. Quote, he had never liked Scrimgeour much, Harry thinks, as he sits in shock and gratitude. But if what Lupin said was true, the man's final act had been to try to protect Harry. Lupin continues. The intruders searched the burrow, quote, from top to bottom, trying to gain information on Harry. And Ron's ghoul gambit apparently did the trick. Shouts to Ron. Shouts. Fooling them into believing Ron was at home, but stricken with the highly infectious spattergroid. They interrogated everyone else who remained behind for information, but no one but the Order knew Harry had been there, and no one in the Order broke. Pause here for a moment to pour one out for Bill and Fleur. Hell of a way to spend your wedding night. Brutal. Yeah. I feel like they probably found a way to make up for it. Oh, yes. (laughs) (laughs) It take more than this to stop us! (laughs) At the very moment the Death Eaters were hitting the burrow, they were doing the same at every Order-connected home. Thankfully, no one was killed, but make no mistake, the Death Eaters' tactics were brutal. They use the Cruciatus curse on Tonks' family. The Tonks are okay, Lupin insists, though shaken, and sadly won't be okay for long. Still, this is a realization of Harry's worst fears. Already, people who have been close to him are suffering. Harry doesn't understand how the Death Eaters got through the defensive charms around the Tonks' home. After all, these are the safeguards that stopped Voldemort. What you've got to realize, Harry, is that the Death Eaters have got the full might of the Ministry on their side now, said Lupin. They've got the power to perform brutal spells without fear of identification or arrest. They managed to penetrate every defensive spell we'd cast against them, and once inside, they were completely open about why they'd come. Hermione, furious, 
asks if the ministry is even bothering to explain their new ruthless methods. Lupin produces a copy of The Daily Prophet, now Voldemort's propaganda tool, as it had been for some time, though previously passively, now actively. The front page is a picture of Harry with the headline, Wanted for Questioning About the Death of Albus Dumbledore. This is their pretext for going after Harry in such fashion. Notably, they feel they need a pretext. Voldemort could have had his minions kill everyone at the wedding, known associates of Dumbledore and Harry as they were, but he did not. He could torture information out of his subjects without pretext, false and shameful though that pretext may be, but he isn't. He wants the wizarding public to follow him. He wants, if not their trust, at least their allegiance, certainly their obedience. He doesn't want terror and open rebellion. It's a puppet show, a farce, but it's part of his approach. Ron and Hermione are outraged. Harry, though disgusted, reacts with stoicism. He pushes the newspaper away, and he knows without reading it what the article must say. He is, after all, used to this. Yes. All his life, he's had to deal with the story of his life being out of his control, with others crafting narratives about what he went through, which bore little, if any, resemblance to reality. The story is a dramatic escalation compared to blind items about girlfriends, a hideous violation of one of the most sacred relationships in his life, an unforgivable corruption of his final moments with a man he loved, but it's still in keeping with Harry's experiences, particularly with the prophet. He's had to learn long before now not to let things other people say about him affect him, not to let the public perception, trust, or lack thereof impact him at all. Quote, but surely people realize what's going on, Hermione asks, and Lupin says, quote, the coup has been smooth and virtually silent. The official story for Scrimgeour's death is that he resigned. The thickness, a puppet under the sway of the imperious curse, has risen to the top job. And when Ron asks why Voldemort didn't appoint himself minister, Lupin says, he doesn't need to, Ron. He's in charge, effectively at the top of his entire operation. So why burden himself with the day-to-day -day tasks of governance? That's not what he's interested in. With Pius operating as puppet, Voldemort is free to extend his power beyond the ministry. The ministry, remember, was never really the goal. Just a step on the way, a cog in the wheel, another opposing chess piece to turn into a tool. Many suspect, however, that Voldemort is really behind the controls. But they're not saying so, Lupin says. Quote, they whisper. They daren't confide in each other, not knowing whom to trust. They are scared to speak out. This kind of fear is debilitating. Speak the wrong thing to the wrong person. Someone who was never on your side, perhaps, or someone who was but has been turned, warped, and see your life end or your family suffer. For all of Voldemort's close-mindedness and arrogance, we have to give him this. This part of the plot was well-crafted. Declaring himself, Lupin says, might have provoked open rebellion. The weaponization of lies and plausible deniability comes naturally to the Dark Lord, who himself is incapable of real trust, of real closeness to other people. Thus, he understands instinctively how to sow discord in others, how to move in the shadows to create doubt, and how to exploit the hesitation of the doubtful to his full and fearful advantage. Turning Harry a symbol of hope for so many and for so long into a threat, an enemy is, in Lupin's words, a master stroke. Maybe not everyone will believe it, but it's enough just to create a rift in the foundation for a grain of sand to halt the machine, preventing the rallying cry from taking hold. Voldemort's not just using the ministry and the press to poison Harry's name. Fudge and Umbridge style, he's beginning to employ his blood politics. Meanwhile, Lupin continues, pointing at another story in The Prophet, the Ministry has started moving against Muggleborns. 
Hermione, a muggle-born herself, reads it aloud from the screed on the muggle-born register. She reads, Recent research undertaken by the Department of Mysteries reveals that magic can only be passed from person to person when wizards reproduce. Where no proven wizarding ancestry exists, therefore, the so-called muggle-born is likely to have obtained magical power by theft or force. This is vile. A textbook example of how to use lies to dehumanize a group of people, and in doing so, create a regime based on centralized power. Crucially, it should be pointed out that the charge that Muggleborns have stolen their power is ridiculous on its face. How would Hermione, for example, an 11-year-old child, have been able to steal magical power from the wizarding world or even to comprehend that such a world exists? But the implausibility, the grandness of it is really part of the design. Those who subscribe to this warped way of thinking either do so because they believe in it or because they benefit from it. Either way, they're complicit and the outcome for the victims of this new survey is the same, whatever the true beliefs of those behind it. Voldemort, a man who knows no remorse, has given his supporters the slimmest avenue for retreat to admit that they were wrong. Ron, showing the naive hope of youth, says people won't let this happen. But Lupin says it's already happening. The Muggleborns are being rounded up, persecuted, forced to live in a world without faith or trust. Noting how foolish this is, there wouldn't be any squibs if magic could be stolen. Only makes it more maddening, but that's not stopping the spread of oppression. Those who can't prove they have at least one close wizarding relative are being punished. And in one of the more touching moments in this tense chapter, Ron offers to cover for Hermione, to protect her, to put her safety above his own. From the book, Ron glanced at Hermione, then said, What if purebloods and half-bloods swear a muggle-born's part of the family? I'll tell everyone Hermione's my cousin. Hermione covered Ron's hand with hers and squeezed it. Thank you, Ron, but I couldn't let you. You won't have a choice, said Ron fiercely, gripping her hand back. I'll teach you my family tree so you can answer questions on it. Hermione's touch, but also she's practical. They're on the run with Harry. They're doomed no matter what if they're caught. Hermione asks about Hogwarts, and Lupin shares that attendance is now mandatory. A change that guarantees Voldemort access to the youthful wizarding population in exactly the way that Dumbledore feared when he expressed to Harry and Half-Blood Prince that he was sure Voldemort saw Hogwarts in part as a, quote, useful recruiting ground and a place where he might begin to build himself an army. Now, of course, he's already begun to build himself an army. This is an extra step, a further step, another measure of twisted control, robbing people of their agency, forcing them to live under his thumb, his watchful red eyes. And students must give blood status too, meaning that Muggleborns won't be able to attend. And Harry is sickened as he hears all of this. He thinks of the incoming first years, quote, pouring over stacks of newly purchased spell books, unaware that they would never see Hogwarts, perhaps never see their families again either. Faced with this purposeful and depraved cruelty, cruelty for cruelty's sake, Harry finds himself at a complete loss for words. It's It's, I know, Lupin says quietly, an expression of understanding between two people who've built such affection and trust. Lupin, however, isn't here just to check on his former students and catch them up on the goings-on outside. He has an agenda of his own, noting that the Order believes Dumbledore left them a mission. Can you confide in me what the mission is, Lupin asks. And here begins one of the most absolutely wrenching stretches in the entire story. Harry's response is sadly ironic, considering his own feelings over being left out of Dumbledore's trust. Honoring Dumbledore's request to keep the circle tight back in Half-Blood Prince, when McGonagall asked for details on what Harry and Dumbledore had been doing, or even earlier in Deathly Hallows when Molly and Lupin and Arthur were asking the trio about their plans, was frustrating given Harry's resentment of Dumbledore's withholding nature, but at least in line with Harry's commitment to following Dumbledore's plan as strictly as he could. 
But now? Now that Harry's doubting so much about the man, why not tell Lupin, who has helped Harry understand so much about himself, about his fears, about his family, about the magical world? And yet, quote, Harry looked into the prematurely lined face framed in thick but graying hair and wished that he could return a different answer. I can't, Remus. I'm sorry. If Dumbledore didn't tell you, I don't think I can. And Harry is using Remus's first name. They're not teacher and student anymore. They're peers, two grown men trying to find the best way forward. And for the first time, realizing that that might not be together. Lupin, though clearly disappointed, is not dissuaded. I thought you say that, he said. But I might still be of some use to you. You know what I am and what I can do. I could come with you to provide protection. There would be no need to tell me exactly what you were up to. This, I can't overstate this, is a stunning offer. In Prince, we saw how Lupin resented Dumbledore's decision to turn his lycanthropy into a tool. And here he's offering it up freely. It's a measure, and not an altogether charitable one, of how mission-focused Harry is, that his initial thoughts revolve around whether keeping the mission secret would actually be possible if he accepted this offer. Hermione, thankfully, asks, but what about Tonks? And Lupin says, unbelievably, what about her? (laughs) All-time bad luck. (laughs) Tough look for my guy. (laughs) This is one of the toughest looks there is. This would be a shocking way to hear anyone talk about a partner, but Lupin, who we know and love so well, unbelievable. Hermione notes that his newlyweds, Tonks, surely would not enjoy Lupin heading out for a dangerous life on the road. And when Lupin replies that Tonks will be safe with their parents, Harry can tell that something is off, something strange. Lupin's voice, quote, was almost cold. He brushes aside their questions about whether everything's okay, and in the ensuing awkward silence, he speaks aloud the source of his torment. Tonks is going to have a baby, he says. The trio congratulates him, but his smile is, quote, more like a grimace as he asks, again, if he can join them on the road. Will three become four? I cannot believe that Dumbledore would have disapproved, he says, noting that they're bound to face magic none of them have ever seen. Harry can't believe what he's hearing. Lupin wants to leave his wife and unborn child and hit the road with the gang. Quote, Harry, I'm sure James would have wanted me to stick with you, Lupin says. And Harry returns pure venom, a toxin that eats through their confidence in each other. Well, I'm not, he says. I'm pretty sure my father would have wanted to know why you aren't sticking with your own kid, actually. This is absolutely gutting. And all Lupin can do is tell Harry that he doesn't understand. Explain then, Harry says. And at last, Lupin puts forth the source of his misery that Harry has sensed undoing him all book. The reason that he looks so tortured is Tonks glowed blissfully beside him. He believes that he has cursed his wife and child. He says that he made a grave mistake in marrying Tonks. I did it against my better judgment, and I have regretted it very much ever since. I see, said Harry. So you're just going to dump her and the kid and run off with us? And Lupin jumps to his feet in response, glaring at Harry so fiercely, quote, that Harry saw for the first time ever the shadow of the wolf upon his human face. Wow. Lupin kicks aside his overturned chair as he shouts that he's made Tonks and their child outcasts. Quote, don't you understand what I've done? He reminds them that life for his kind isn't what they're used to seeing with him among the order under Dumbledore's protective endorsement. Others are repulsed by him. Even Tonks' family, he says, is disgusted by their union. When he mentions the child, he actually pulls at his own hair. Quote, he looked quite deranged. He says that werewolves don't usually breed, and he's plagued by what this might mean. 
by what he perceives as his own weakness and indulgence doing to his child. Quote, it will be like me, I am convinced of it. How can I forgive myself when I knowingly risk passing on my condition to an innocent child? What an absolutely agonizing sentiment. All Harry has ever wanted is to know his family, to learn about them, to better understand in what ways he was like them. The idea that Lupin fears this very thing is absolutely crushing. He can't trust in the very essence of who he is. Quote, and if by some miracle it is not like me, then it will be better off a hundred times so, without a father of whom it must always be ashamed, he says. And when Hermione tries to comfort him, tries to push this doubt aside, Harry issues a line so savage that it shocks still, no matter how many times you've read it. Oh, I don't know, Hermione. I'd be pretty ashamed of him. (sighs) Wow! And Harry stands up, too, feeling rage that he can't quite understand. Quote, Lupin looked as though Harry had hit him. These two have been through so much together. Lupin taught Harry how to cast a Patronus, helped Harry uncover the truth of Pettigrew's treachery and Sirius's innocence, told Harry so much about James and growth and imperfection and regret. He's always been a character who won us over in large part because despite all that had happened to him, all that had gone wrong in his life, he'd put his trust in friendship, in love, in the Marauders and Dumbledore and Harry and the bonds that helped him find himself. And Harry's anger comes from feeling that crumble and also from the injustice of the idea of a man who could raise his child choosing not to. An injustice Harry is poised to feel more keenly than ever after reading Lily's letter, a letter that she wrote when she was 21 years old, barely older than Harry is right now. My father died trying to protect my mother and me, he says. And you reckon he'd tell you to abandon your kid to go on an adventure with us? Now, of course, Lupin doesn't want an adventure. Right. He wants to escape his pain, his yes. guilt, his shame. He is totally unmoored, lost in the terror. How how dare you, he says. But Harry is not done. This is just awful. I'd never have believed this, Harry says. The man who taught me to fight Dementors. A coward. And Lupin draws his wand before Harry can draw his and sends Harry flying as though punched. And then he flees, ignoring Hermione's pursuing cries. That Harry and Lupin can ever recover from this is a testament to the real love between them, the unshakable trust that ultimately allows Lupin in time to sift through the viciousness in what Harry's saying here and find the heart of it, that allows Lupin to make his way back to Tonks and his baby and eventually celebrate Teddy's birth with Harry, not as student and teacher, but as equals and friends, that allows Lupin to name Harry godfather here now ron and hermione can't believe what harry has done how could you hermione asks it was easy harry says as ron and harry yell and hermione tells them not to fight images race through harry's mind images of those he's lost Sirius falling through the veil dumbledore in midair parents harry says shouldn't leave their kids unless unless they've got to when harry's rage ebbs regret surges in to take its place from the book he had once spoken to lupin out of that fireplace, seeking reassurance about James, and Lupin had consoled him. Now Lupin's tortured white face seemed to swim in the air before him. He felt a sickening surge of remorse. Harry knows his friends so well that even with his back to them, he can sense them communicating silently with looks and gestures. He knows that he went too far, and he knows he has to address it. I know I shouldn't have called him a coward, Harry says. No, you shouldn't, said Ron at once. But he's acting like one, Harry says. All the same, said Hermione. I know, said Harry. But if it makes him go back to Tonks, it'll be worth it, won't it? 
That's a rationalization, Harry's version of for the greater good, and he knows it. The thinness of the logic stares him in the face. From the book, he could not keep the plea out of his voice. Hermione looked sympathetic, Ron uncertain. Harry looked down at his feet, thinking of his father. Would James have backed Harry in what he had said to Lupin, or would he have been angry at how his son had treated his old friend? Harry is looking for confirmation here, for backup. And it's a testament to the purity of their friendship that Ron and Hermione don't give it to him. Trust is the bedrock of their friendship. They will not lie to spare each other's feelings. A heavy silence falls on our friends. Harry picks up Lupin's daily prophet and absentmindedly flips the page, the sound echoing in the dead quiet. Dumbledore's name and an accompanying photograph of a family snap him to attention. The caption reads, The Dumbledore family, left to right. Albus, Percival, holding newborn Ariana, Kendra, and Aberforth. Harry thinks how normal they look, how happy. It recalls the moment in order when Harry reflects on the photo Moody showed him of Dumbledore's original fighting force, quote, all waving happily out of the photograph forevermore, not knowing that they were doomed. Finally, his eye falls on the headline. Exclusive extract from the upcoming biography of Albus Dumbledore by Rita Skeeter. Hashtag my favorite. <laughs> <laughs> She's not my favorite, guys. Come on, it's a joke. She is. No. The excerpt tells a more writerly version of the tale Aunt Muriel told at Bill and Fleur's reception. Kendra, Albus's mother, is portrayed as domineering and cold. According to Skeeter, Kendra moved the family to Godric's Hollow and away from Moldonwald because of the embarrassment stemming from her husband's attack on the Muggle Boys and his subsequent incarceration in Azkaban. So private was Mrs. Dumbledore that Bagshot had no idea that Ariana existed until she spotted her one night in the garden. From the article, it seemed that Kendra thought the move to Godric's Hollow was the perfect opportunity to hide Ariana once and for all, something she had probably been planning for years. The timing was significant. Ariana was barely seven years old when she vanished from sight, and seven is the age by which most experts agree that magic will have revealed itself, if present. The excerpt concludes by echoing Muriel's charge that Kendra, humiliated at having produced a squib, kept Ariana hidden from view a virtual prisoner. Harry initially read the article thinking it couldn't make him feel worse than he already did. From the book, Harry had been wrong. What he had read had indeed made him feel worse. It doesn't quite shatter Harry's already fragile trust in Dumbledore. The effect is more cumulative, compounding what Harry read from Doge and Rita and the Prophet before, then learned from Dumbledore's will, then heard in Muriel's tale. Harry resolves in that moment to go to Godric's Hollow, to see his parents' graves, to speak, no matter her state, to Bethilda, and to decide for himself. He can't rely on other accounts anymore. He must trust in what his own eyes show him. And just as he's preparing to state this intention aloud, he hears a crack. A watchpot never boils, and a sought-after elf never apparates. Harry's row with Lupin had shunted Creature's mission from his mind, finally, for the first time in days. And so, with perfect timing, Creature arrives with his quarry, who appears, quote, as a tangle of limbs. Creature has returned with the thief, Mundungus Fletcher, master. Dung fumbles for his wand, but Hermione hits him with Expelliarmus first. And when Dung tries to flee, Ron bodily tackles him. What, Dung bellows? What have I done? Dung looks like shit and smells like it too. But Creature is relishing this moment, apologizing to Harry only for the delay. Nevertheless, Creature cornered the thief in the end, he says. Creature has never spoken to Harry this way, and we see already the dividends that small yes. kindnesses are paying, the unity that they're forging. You've done really well, Creature, Harry says. And Creature bows. Dung thinks that he's there because he fled during the Seven Potters flight. But that ain't it, Chief. A note to you, Mundungus Fletcher. If you don't know why the Chosen One has sent a house elf to pursue you and bring you to justice, you might want to reassess some things about your life. Harry says that's not why he's there, and then Dung guesses wrong again. 
saying if this is about the goblets. You're getting warmer, Harry says. And then he starts to mention Dung cleaning out the house. And when Dung interjects to say that Sirius never cared for any of that, quote, junk, creature begins to beat him over the head with a pant. A defenseless man. Harry calls him off. Extremely tough stuff for everyone involved here. Harry resumes, saying there was a locket in the stuff Dung pilfered. From the book, Harry's mouth was suddenly dry. He could sense Ron and Hermione's excitement, too. What did you do with it? Why? Asked Mundungus. Is it valuable? You've still got it, cried Hermione. No, he hasn't, said Ron shrewdly. He's wondering whether he should have asked for more money for it. More, said Mundungus. That would have been effing difficult. Bleeding gave it away, didn't I? No choice. He was selling his wares in Diagon Alley, he says, when a ministry witch asked him for a license. Bleeding snoop. <laughs> Instead of finding him, she bribed him by asking for the locket, which she had spotted and craved. He doesn't know who she was, he says. Some ministry hag, he thinks for a moment, then adds, little woman, bow on top of her head. He frowned, then added, looked like a toad. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> As Harry looks up at Ron and Hermione, his own shock reflected in their faces. The message about truth, lies, trust, literally embedded it onto his body by the woman Dung had just described, shines up at him from his own hand. Dolores Umbridge. Jason? Yes. Master Regulus told Binge Mode to come back. Ah. So toss the invisibility cloak over our heads. Crack. And lead us into the restricted section to teach us what we need to know about house elves. The first time Harry sees a house elf is over the summer between his first and second years at Hogwarts on the night the Masons visit the Dursley home. Harry enters his room and sees, quote, a little creature on the bed that had large bat-like ears and bulging green eyes the size of tennis balls. It's Dobby. This was a house elf. This was a magical being unlike any other in the wizarding world. It's unclear what other kinds of elves there are, or if elvish is just a term describing a kind of magical being, thus necessitating the house descriptor. But either way, because house elves have been a wizarding institution for so long, few witches or wizards bat an eye at their treatment. House elves are tied to a specific master or family whom they must serve obediently and without fail. They cook, they clean, they do everything their master asks. And if they speak ill of their master or don't complete a task, they physically punish themselves in a manner that would look comical if it weren't so tragic. In contemporary society, house elves belong either to large organizations like the government or St. Mungo's or to wealthy manor families. And at least from the example we see in the series, they are often mistreated and brutalized without any care for their feelings or any legal recourse. Many elves don't have the perspective to know they're being mistreated and instead grow attached to their masters. It was the highest honor for the Black family's elves, for instance, to have their heads taken off and mounted in one of the Grimaud Holmes walls. And other Hogwarts elves find Dobby odd because of his fondness for clothes and freedom. House elves can live a long time, and though they are subjugated and servile beings, as Creature says in this section of Master's Orders is a house elf's, quote, highest law, they can perform feats that magical humans cannot. They can apparate where wizards and witches can't, like inside Hogwarts and in Voldemort's cave. And they can do magic without the focusing power of a wand, which wizards in Britain cannot, except in the most dire and emotional of circumstances. All of these details point to a strange sort of existence for the house elves and an oftentimes uncomfortable one for readers. And even for Rowling herself, as she said at the White House Easter egg roll in 2010, when asked who she would want as a personal house elf, quote, I definitely don't want a house elf. I think they are a little bit creepy, although 
they would be useful in a way when I've got housework to do. I think I would find it exceptionally creepy to have a house elf. So I would rather they were all free. So if a house elf was in my house, I would immediately give it clothes and say, have fun, go. Indeed, the one way to free house elves from servitude is to give them a gift of clothing, which means that for many elves who don't desire freedom, they avoid clothes as much as possible. Winky cries at the prospect in Goblet, and all the Hogwarts elves besides Dobby steer clear of Gryffindor Tower in order when Hermione fills the common room with hidden hats and scarves. Hogwarts employs a large number of house elves, at least 100, who fulfill the castle's cooking and cleaning needs. And the host of elves has been there for a while. Rowling said in a Pottercast interview in 2007 that Helga Hufflepuff brought a large group to Hogwarts a thousand years ago and gave them good working conditions. However, Rowling added, quote, there was no kind of activism there. So no one's going to say, here's an idea, let's free them. It was just, well, we'll bring them somewhere they can work and not be abused. Few witches and wizards throughout the years bothered with such activism and even a caring wizard like Dumbledore who advocated for their fair treatment and even offered Dobby pay and time off work, worked on an individual rather than a large-scale basis. Until, that is, Hermione Granger, founder of the Society for Promotion of Elvish Welfare and future Minister of Magic, learned about their plight. Hermione's early efforts were problematic and full of stops and starts, mainly because she decided to impress her own values upon the elves rather than letting them decide what they wanted for themselves. As Hermione grew older, however, she changed tack and worked for institutional change. And as Rowling revealed in a 2007 Bloomsbury chat, quote, Hermione began her post-Hogwarts career at the Department for the Regulation and Control of Magical Creatures, where she was instrumental in greatly improving life for house elves and their ilk. Spew might not have achieved its intended purpose while Hermione was at school, but she succeeded in the long run and shouts as always to Hermione and to Dobby and Creature. Jason? Yes. What's up? If it's massive spiders again, I want breakfast before. <laughs> I guess that's what Ron was doing. Not spiders, okay. Then let's split our nuggets, if not our souls, by sharing seven of our favorite insights and observations from Hallows, chapters 9 through 11, because seven remains the most powerfully magical number. I'll go first. Number one. When Ron voices his suggestion that the trio go to the Leaky Cauldron for news, Hermione says... We know what's going on. Yeah. Voldemort's taken over the ministry. What else do we need to know? Two paragraphs later, the workmen who will prove to be Death Eaters enter the cafe. We will learn later in the story, after Ron returns to Harry and Hermione and shares this knowledge, that the use of Voldemort's name in that above quote is what drew the Death Eaters to the cafe. Once Voldemort took over the ministry, he implemented a taboo that made those who uttered his name trackable, knowing that Harry, like Dumbledore, is unafraid to speak his name and thus might fall victim to this magic. Number two, speaking of tracking, Lupin notes that, quote, it's impossible to track anyone who apparates unless you grab a hold of them as they disappear. Nice Easter egg here for the impending showdown at the ministry after which Yaxley will grab a hold of Hermione as she disapparates and thus enter into Grimald's place's protections, making it an unsuitable hideout for the trio going forward, much to their, our, and creature's devastation. Number three, and speaking of Grimald Place, we will later learn that Snape took the missing part of Lily's letter and photograph. Now, some might wonder how. Mm -hmm. How did he successfully enter Order Headquarters, given the measures put in place to prevent him from doing exactly that? The answer, it turns out, is quite simple. As J.K. Rowling explained in a 2007 Bloomsbury chat, quote, Snape entered the house immediately after Dumbledore's death, before Moody put up the spells against him. 
Number four, shouts to Hermione for subduing Dolohov, the second Death Eater in the cafe. Elsewhere in the series, Dolohov bests Moody in their duel in the Department of Mysteries, and he's the one who kills Lupin in the Battle of Hogwarts. Bad dude. He also participated in the murders of the Pruitts, who were Molly's brothers, and yet Hermione beats him in the cafe. And the win was especially notable for her because in the Department of Mysteries, Dolohov is the Death Eater who nearly killed her and would have had Hermione not cast a silencing charm on him before his awful curse. Number five, this is, as outlined, an extremely fraught stretch for our guy, Remus Lupin, but we do have a beautiful bit of solace to offer here. Not only will Teddy Lupin grow up to be proud of his father, not ashamed, even though he didn't get to know him, he will grow up to be a shining star. Remus, remember, was a Gryffindor student and a house prefect, and Teddy will become, according to a 2015 tweet from JKR, Hogwarts head boy and a proud member of Hufflepuff House, just like his mother. Number six, when Harry peers into the room that he and Ron used to share, he observes that Phineas Nigellus's frame is empty. This is not a mere scene setting, but rather a primer for us to recall Phineas's placement at both 12 Grimaud Place and Hogwarts, ahead of Hermione's impending Chapter 12 brainstorm to store his photo in her bag so that Snape can't use the portrait connection to spy on them. Of course, the portrait will wind up doing just that, but to everybody's benefit, feeding Snape key intel about their location, gleaned for some shoddy bag protection, that will ultimately allow Snape to get Harry the sword. Number seven, we miss Alistair Mad-Eye Moody every day. And so it is with great tenderness and affection that we share this little nugget of one of the last gifts he bestowed upon his fellows by setting up the anti-Snape enchantments at Grimmauld Place. According to a game on Pottermore, the incantation used to set up the tongue-tying curse that Moody employs is Mimblewimble, which I think we can all agree is just delightful. Just delightful to imagine the hearted Moody needing to say that. Mal, Nothing Creature did made any mark upon it, but he made a mark upon us Indeed. and our hearts. Except for the racist stuff. That part's is not tough, good. Which is tough from Creature. Every episode, we're going to honor the person or idea who captivated us the most. And today, we're dishing out some last-minute points and awarding the House Cup, too. Creature. What a showing from our guy, it's from the Creech. The, the Creech man. As you said, a deeply flawed individual, yes. It's not his fault. But he is what Wizards made him, and also showing here the capacity for change and growth, which is a big deal and a big theme in the story. After being forced to recount the worst memory of his life, he receives both Harry's empathy and Regulus's fake locket, which he feels honored beyond belief to possess as a black family heirloom. He catches Mundungus Fletcher. Takes him a little while, but he gets it done. And he brings him back to 12 Grimaud Place, allowing the trio to locate the locket. Obviously, just the sheer reveal here yes. is so massive. One, he is providing essential intel to Harry and to us. And also, within that intel is contained the stunning realization that he escaped the cave. He yes. bested Voldemort, incredible. Well, friends, podcasts shouldn't leave their listeners unless, unless they've got to. And that's why Isaac Lee and Zach Cram, our indispensable producer and researcher, work so hard to help us try to make this show for you all. Yes. We hope that you all had as much fun as we did today. Again, not sure fun's the right word. We might not have to fun, adjust this. Not a, not a fun one, guys. <laughs> that you're as excited as we are for the rest of this journey. And that you'll join us again next time. We will be discussing chapters 12 through 14 of Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows. Till then, remember, if Dumbledore didn't tell you, we don't think we can.
May 5th, 1975. Sirius! Open the door. I'm coming in. Mom, hold on. I'm just putting up posters. Sirius, open this door right... Sirius, what are you... Are these mudblood women? How dare you? You could have at least picked some girl from the sacred 28 to put up on your wall. How dare you?